Okay, perfect. So I'm here today with Kevin from Point Break, and you know what? I'm I'm actually no good at introductions. I'm gonna let him introduce himself. And you want me to take it away? I gather, Jonathan. So yeah, take it, take that. it away. I will certainly do that. Um, so thank you. Nice to be here. Um, Pleasure to have so you. So it's always interesting when now somebody asks you to introduce yourself. I mean, you know, you want to want to go off on a tangent, make all these great, wonderful stories, and sometimes the reality is just not that exciting. But uh, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was younger. How's that for? Did for you really? Now? That's yeah. that is not a bad start. Didn't, how did how did that turn out? Uh, not so well. Didn't get there. Still have a dream of <laughs> going to space, and hopefully one day I can afford to do that, and it might come along, but not going to get there. But well, I mean, Elon Musk is is trying to get you there. Absolutely, he is, and him and Peter Diamantes, and between them, they'll figure out a way to do it for me. So, uh, <laughs> no, it's good. So, thanks for that. So, uh, so right now, I'm with a company called Point Break Consulting Group, and we are a pension and benefits consulting firm, and that's that's all that we do. And so, I can talk later about about Point Break and who it is and what we what we how we came to be. But basically, I started in the benefits business um, right in the university. I have a finance degree. And I started uh, as an underwriter with an insurance company. And so I have a pretty deep technical background. Um, grew up in Winnipeg, so you might guess what that insurance company is. Um, worked through that for a number of years and then joined a number of um, actuarial consulting firms and kind of moved through, uh, through my career with a lot of the, a couple of large actuarial firms and eventually created Point Break about 15 years ago. So that's a quick summary. What else can I tell you about me? What else can you tell me? That's, that's a great question. I mean, that is a pretty quick summary. What were you doing before Point Break? What got you, well, or you know what, actually, let's go even further back. What got you into insurance in the first place? Sure. Okay. So I'll take it a bit more detailed. So uh, when I graduated from university, there uh, was not a lot of jobs available. It was a bit of a recession, and I had no idea even how to spell underwriter. Didn't even know that profession existed. Like many of us who come into this business, I think you stumble into it. You don't plan to go into it. Don't know a lot of people that wake up or come up to their fifth grade, uh, fifth grade teacher and on career day and say, yes, I'd love to be in the benefits business. So most of us stumble into it, which I did. And so worked for Great West Life for a number of years uh, as an underwriter. And that was, it was great training for me um, because the technical side is something I've been interested in, um, got quite good at it, and certainly has become one of our strengths and one of the, the strengths of, of Point Break as well. So I worked for them for a number of years, and then I spent some time at a couple of large actuarial firms. And I worked with them, understanding you know, the consulting side of the business, large case underwriting, large client management. Um, in the end, I culminated, I was a senior VP at one of the actuarial firms, and I had the compensation, benefits, pension, and health strategies all reporting into me. So that was a great learning. Wow. And uh, you know, learned a lot through that process. Um, I think took a lot into my consulting career from doing all of those types of things. And then about 15 years ago, um, I kind of got to the point where I'd probably learned, uh, you know, a significant amount by that point in time. Um, didn't really enjoy the large company experience and was looking to do something else. And I'd known somebody <laughs> who was running this company. Uh, it was a very tiny company at the time, and uh, I got together with a former partner of mine and. And we rebranded this company as Point Break and grew it quite nicely over the years. That's that's a fantastic story. I like that. So I, I kind of want to detour a little bit. We'll get mm -hmm. back to Point Break soon because I'd love to talk a little bit a little bit about you know benefits consulting, a little bit about pension consulting. Um, before we do that, you mentioned before we started recording that you were that you worked or you moonlighted as a strategic coach. Is that right? I don't moonlight as it. I actually attend the strategic coach workshops. So ah, okay, strategic okay. Coach, yeah, strategic coach is a, an entrepreneurial um, um, 
form, I guess, if you will, program. Uh, certainly a lot of people in financial services have been through Strategic Coach. And it it's basically helps one become a better entrepreneur. It doesn't really help you sell or anything like that, but it helps you understand how to be an entrepreneur, how to uh, make sure your mindset has, uh, is, is the right mindset for growing your company and, 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 and scaling your company and expanding your company. I see, I see. I thought you were doing strategic coaching, no, uh, kind of uh, similarly to executive coaching. No. Okay, so what, what, were the, what were the top lessons you got out of strategic coaching, just out of curiosity? I think one of the, the most important lessons I've, I've received or I've, I've kind of taken away is how to be a better entrepreneur. And I okay. think when I, when I first started Point Break and, and, and bought a portion of the company, I, I brought my big company expertise and talents to that. And what I ended up doing is becoming an operator of the company. So I was a good business owner, I was a good manager, but I wasn't thinking like an entrepreneur. And I hmm. think over the years, that program, among other things, has helped me think more like an entrepreneur and think more about scale and bigger impact one can have on things versus just meeting numbers and, and driving revenue. And it's really interesting because I, I think the best definition I ever got for an entrepreneur is somebody who, who can you know work with a magnifying glass and without. They can zoom in to the very weeds to do the operational piece, and then they can zoom out and look at the big strategic landscape and at the big opportunities and at the big kind of market trends and where there are opportunities. Is that about what you see as well? I think that's really a good definition, and I'd probably expand on it a little bit because I think mm -hmm. over time, to be that good entrepreneur, you need to, to have others around you who are, who are better in the weeds than you are. Um, you know, okay. I, I think we all think we're, we can do everything, and the reality is other people can do many things better than I can. And I think when you, you kind of bring people around you who are great at those types of things and allow you to go to your strengths, which, you know, if that's the bigger picture, then I think that makes you actually a better entrepreneur when you're, when you're bringing the right people in to, to work with you. That's the thing. And you don't think it could work the other way around as well, where you're a good entrepreneur because you're absolutely incredible at the weeds, you're okay at the big picture, but you can bring in people who are very, very good at the strategic aspects? I think both of those models can work, and we've seen examples of that in many different businesses. I think it's a lot more difficult to scale if you're the in-the-weeds person first and foremost, because mm -hmm. I don't, I'm not sure you can appreciate broad strategies that somebody else might bring to you, uh, because you're focused on the here and the now, you know, and, and creating great client experiences, which I think is absolutely tremendous, but I'm not sure you can actually scale quite as much. Yeah, and I think, I think that's fair. I think... Um it's always interesting to me to kind of see how how different people's strengths work together with teams. I mean, I, I was talking earlier about kind of how Ali and I work, where he's the eternal sunshine optimist, and I'm very cynical, and in reality ends up somewhere in the middle of it. Um, and, and to that point as well, I think in general, he's much more of the let's look three years into the future, and I'm much more of the let's look three hours into the future kind of person. And, it, <laughs> I, I, and that seems to be a good kind of tempo to work with somebody, for me at least. I think that's a good fit, and it actually creates a good cadence for the company if you can live with that. And I think, you know, a testament to you guys that you're making that work, because oftentimes many have trouble making those, those types of things work. You know, as, as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, when you're hiring people, the easiest thing to do is to hire somebody like you because you mm -hmm. see the strengths, mm -hmm. you see what's right. I mean, the challenging part is to hire somebody who's, who's very different than you or even diametrically opposite to you Yeah. and then, then learn and coach each other how to bring those strengths to the partnership or to the organization so that, you know, one-on-one -on -one makes a lot more than three or four. 
Yeah, I, I would agree. One of the things that you always have to look out for, you know, wh- wh- even I look out for when we're recruiting is making sure we're not just finding people who have the exact same strengths. Um, because as you said, like, if you're just hiring people who are just like you, you, you lose a lot of that diversity of viewpoint that is just so valuable. Well, you lose a lot of the diversity and you actually end up with a lot of groupthink because you all mm-hmm. think the same thing and then you, you know, you reward each other. Oh, yes, you're brilliant because I thought the same thing. You know, I'm not sure that's valuable. <laughs> It's, it's funny because every once in a while, Ali or I will sit down and we'll, this happened about probably a week, week and a half ago. And the exact conversation we had was, I think we've been agreeing too much lately. Is something <laughs> like, do we need to think over some of our fundamental assumptions? Like, is, is something wrong because we're not bickering as much as we're nor- we normally do? Yes, we, we have to find something to disagree with. <laughs> otherwise, it, yeah, otherwise we're definitely drinking the Kool-Aid together. Exactly. 100% correct. <laughs> okay, so so great. I mean, I, I'd love to kind of go back now to, to benefits and pension consulting. What's what's the day-to-day of your job like? So the day-to-day of my, day-to-day of my job is, is, is multiple fold. So one, um, I spend a lot of time thinking about the future and kind of where the industry is going to take us, you know, what's going to be needed for success in the future. So I spend time thinking that. I spend a lot of time working with our team, um, both our team of business development people and our team of consultants. Again, I've got a relatively strong um, uh, financial background and, and underwriting actuarial side of things. So spend a lot of time problem solving when individuals have certain challenges or certain analysis they're working on um, with our business development team, helping understand kind of what our clients need, where we want to go with our clients and, and kind of how to approach clients and make the best experience for them. So what I like about my day is no two days are the same. Uh, every mm-hmm. day brings different challenges and, and different things to do and, you know, different different people to work with. Because, you know, I, I know the vast majority of our clients, or I've met the vast majority of clients, which is great, and still have many relationships with them. And so I like that, and that part works very, very well for me. Interesting. So, so what does the future look like? That's or what really, do you think it looks like? That's a really good question. Um, you know, if I look at... Our business, and I'm going to refer to our business as kind of pension and benefit kind mm-hmm. of consulting. So just to clarify, we don't do any life insurance. Um, okay. And we don't do any wealth management or anything like that. So everything we do is corporate focused. So that's, Got that's, it. So that's our niche. So part of the reason we do that is because I do think in the future that the market is going to continue to fragment. Okay. And I think if you think about... Ten years ago, from our side of the business, the benefits side, an individual could work in the benefits. They could sell some insurance. They could do some wealth management. They could do. They, they could. They were jacks of all trades, and they could do sure. many, many different things. Over the last twenty years, that has really narrowed, and there's still a place for that. Um, but I think that place is becoming less and less common. And I think the fragmentation that's occurring is I think clients are becoming much more specialized in what they require. So there are certainly many clients still exist today who want to deal with an individual who is going to take care of their benefits, their insurance, and everything else because that's a relationship and that's who that particular client is and that's who they need and they'll probably always need that particular type of advisor. Other clients are looking for more of a consulting relationship. They want somebody who's specialized, who's deep, who's focused on whatever their particular topic is. You know, you've got payroll companies coming in and, and other types of providers, and I think they all have a space as well. I think mm-hmm. each one of those will find a particular niche. There's, there's no one definition of the client anymore. 
I think the client is so specialized and so fragmented that there is opportunity for all sorts of different approaches to success. And, and what drove this fragmentation, or what do you think is driving this fragmentation? I think a number of things, and it's a really good question. I think a number of things are driving it. You know, 20 years ago, we were still in a world of faxes, business moved slowly, startup culture wasn't around, scaling didn't matter to people in such a significant way. And so business itself has changed pretty fundamentally. And the need to provide ROI um, is, is, I think, driving a lot of that. So organizations today are looking at ROI. You know, is my benefit plan contributing to my ROI and how can I make it contribute? And so the organizations look at that and everybody has a different way of solving that particular problem. Some want to solve it purely economically. Some want to solve it by hiring, attracting great people. Some want to solve it by, um, you know, outsourcing as many people as they can and pushing their workforce elsewhere. So I think that has had a big impact. I think mm-hmm. the HR profession has gone through a bit of metamorphosis as well in the last 20 years where it came from a very tactical profession where they were just, you know, completing forms and setting policies. And today, so in large organizations, HR is very strategic. They are sitting at the board table. Um, they are adding value, and they're helping define what their people practices need to be. And however they define those people practices, whatever that means for that particular company, means they needed a different type of advisor that's going to help them in that particular goal. So, so the fact that business has changed a lot has driven that. The other part that's made a big difference specifically on the benefits side is that benefits have been very, very expensive in the last 20 years as well. Um, drug costs and other costs have grown quite dramatically, so what used to be a tiny little line item is now a significant element on, a, on, a, on an income statement. And so because of that, it gets a lot more attention from senior people. Right, right. All of a sudden, people actually care about it. Yeah, yeah, it's becoming expensive. You know, if you used to spend 1% of your payroll on your benefit plan, today it's, you know, 5 or 6. You know, it's a big number. Interesting. So, okay, so I find it interesting what you said about how different niches will start to exist and different people will want different things. And, and I've, I, I kind of see a an analogy with, with things like robo-advisors, mm-hmm. um, with even travel agents or real estate agents, where you've still got a core group of people who want the hands-on approach. They want the wealth manager. They want the the travel agent. They want the real estate agent. And then you've got a chunk of people who are fine with going to Wealthfront or Wealth Simple. They're fine with using Zillow instead. Uh, and, and so you kind of think that this is the, the future of the financial advisor, the future of the group benefits, where some people will use their Zenefits platform, their Humi platform, and other Others will still want somebody who's much more in-depth and will personally work with them on it? Absolutely. I, I do think that's where it's going to go because, you know, the, the history of business and organizations for forever is one of increasing specialization, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you, if you take that, like the company who is about managing margin, the company who is about, um, you know, looking at employees as perhaps not a, a sustainable resource or as a transactional um, type of asset, they're not going to spend a lot on a benefit program. They want to spend a lot on the, the benefits themselves. They don't want to spend a lot on the administration or the execution of that. doesn't mean it's a bad, good or bad strategy. It just simply is their particular strategy. So right. they're going to partner with somebody who's going to deliver that type of service and help them manage those margins in a particular way. You've got another organization who might view people as a competitive, um, as a competitive asset and a competitive differentiator. 
they're going to need a different approach because they want to create a great employee experience, which is going to give them a better customer experience. And so their approach is going to be much more different than, than managing just the margin of the benefit plan. They want value from the benefit plan. They want to be able to attract, retain, inspire, and engage those people. So those two buyers, those two organizations, require very different advisors. And so I think there's, there's lots of room for lots of different advisors. I think the challenge becomes one of when you're trying to put this, the proverbial you know, square peg into the round hole. And I think that's where we're going to see challenges in the future. Yeah, and that makes sense. What what would you advise group benefits advisors today or, or young people who are maybe looking into entering group benefits? Where where should they go? What should they be thinking about? How do they niche themselves? How do they specialize themselves? How do they find the right kind of client? I think that's a really good question. Um, I was going to, you know, it's always easy to start talking before everyone starts thinking, but I've been thinking about it a little bit here. Um, <laughs> You know, I can I can add white noise if you want for a couple of seconds or just cut it out afterwards. <laughs> oh, we're good. No, it's um I think at the end of the day, you have to know yourself. And I think once you know yourself and where you want to provide value and how you can help make somebody else's future bigger for them, then I think that'll point you in the right direction. So if you're an inherently uh, let's say a very technical person got great, you know, analytical skills and an actuary or an underwriter or something like that. Understanding who you are and figuring out how to bring those particular skills to a particular audience who needs those particular skills, I think is very important. You know, if you're somebody who likes to engage with people, you're not you're not great on details, but you see yourself as a relationship manager. You know, you're going to find other clients who have that particular need. So it starts with understanding yourself. Mm-hmm. Once you've done that, then I think you understand yourself, you appreciate what skill set you can bring to the table, and then once you get good at that particular skill set and you hone your trade and, and be that on the sales side of things, or maybe it's on the investment side of things, or maybe it's on the underwriting side of things, or the, the technical part of life insurance, so once you get, you get good at that, then I think you begin to look for clients or organizations that can fit that particular skill set. You know, and I think that's where marketing comes in and, you know, content and social media strategy and all those kind of things. So you can announce your presence on that and then specifically look for individuals who are doing that. So I think a young person who's going to come into our business today is to, to hey, I think it's a great business. And I think there's a, there's a pretty good, um, you know, a pretty good run for this business for quite a number of years down the road. I think it's a great business to be in. I think, about, you know, what is your value? Where do you want to provide value? And then hone up that skill set and be really, really great at that particular skill set. You know, be the best around at doing whatever you do, and then find clients that appreciate what it is that you can do. Okay, and that's that's really interesting. So I, I want to dive a little into the micro and then a little into the macro. So first, I'd sure. love to talk tactically. What are tactics that you think are very successful that you're willing to share um, when it comes to being a benefits consultant? And then on a more macro level. I would love to talk a little bit about your strategy around scaling a business. I mean, we have a lot of financial advisors who listen to this who might be at that stage where they've got nobody working for them or they're starting to think about hiring. And I'd love to kind of understand when you think it's time to pull the trigger and to start hiring and what the, what scaling looks like. Sure. So that was two questions. Yeah. Um, so the first one was tactics. So the tactics, are, you know, things that Point Break's done to be successful, is that what you mean by the tactics? Yeah, or things that you've done in your career sure. to be successful, to find those right clients, to to make sure that you're you're reaching out to them, that make sure to make sure that you're not losing them, uh, those sorts of things. Sure. Yeah, and so 
it's going to sound like a bit of a stuck record, but the first, the first number one tactic is just know who you are and then know what strengths you can bring and be confident in those strengths. So when you're talking to somebody, you can clearly articulate what those strengths are and, and what you can bring. And I found that for myself over the years with the, you know, as an underwriter with the actuarial firms, that my strengths were very much, you know, technical at that point in time. So when I could bring some great technical skills or technical solutions to my clients, they really enjoyed that. As I grew, I got better at understanding the bigger picture, which I think provided value as well. So at Point Break, for example, um, you know, one of the things that I think is different about us is we actually don't think of ourselves as selling benefits or pension plans. Okay. Um, you know, we truly believe that we're in the advice business. And we're, in our particular niche, we're helping our clients craft a better uh, experience for their, for their people. And, you know, a lot of research today is showing that a great employee experience ultimately leads to a great client experience, which drives ROI. So we're actually in the business of providing advice to our clients on how to connect their people to the benefit plan, how to get the most value out of the benefit plan. That's our niche. We articulate that fairly well. Our clients know that that's what we do. So I suspect your clients are the kind of clients who highly value their employees who, who are trying to hunt for the best talent. Yeah, and so that's a really good observation because when we define our ideal client, we don't do it by client size. We do it by client attitude. Um, so we work with clients as small as five people, um, and I think our largest clients got nine or ten or maybe 11,000 people now. So we deal right across the board. And we do want to connect, we do want to work with those people who, in our words, treat employees as an asset to be grown and not a cost to be managed. Mm-hmm. Either of those are very fair operational strategies for a business. We just know who we work better with. There's many right. other people that work better with the secondary one, and, and that's okay. Like, but we're, we're very clear on our value prop and kind of how we can deliver that. And that makes, that, that makes a lot of sense, and I, I fully get what you're saying. So let's, let's back up 15 years um, to, to like the very beginning when you were just getting started with Point Break. Sure. And, and what I'd love to ask you is, you know, where did the first client come from? Where did the first five clients come from? What were you doing? And, and how would you do it differently if you were starting it up today or if you were looking to grow from five to 20 today? Sure. So um, back when I started Point Break, it was, it was already in existence. It was a smaller company at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And I knew one of the partners who's retiring. And so I actually bought on a partner. So I actually cheated a little bit in that I wrote a check, <laughs> I, I wrote a check to get into the business versus okay. starting from square one. And for me, that, that fit my personality better than starting from square one. Uh, I, I probably would not have been good at that and didn't want to try that. So when I came over, we had a few clients and we were, we're doing fine. Um, most of my original clients came from... Uh, uh, relationships I'd had prior to doing this. So they were clients at other firms before. So okay. I, I, brought, I brought those forward. And what was really great is I didn't solicit them, but they, they volunteered to come over. And so they wanted to be a part of us. And so if I think about what triggered that, I think it was great, um, great client relationships five and seven years prior to that even. So it wasn't that didn't start the day I got into Point Break. It started five to seven years before. So I set the stage a long time before that. So those first people that, that came over, I think, were great. Uh, and then they actually we got some great referrals from them and to, to other clients as well. So I think that was very, very valuable. Um, I've been on a number of boards and a different, 
different number of different types of associations and things like that. And I think that is something that has been very valuable as well. And I'd certainly encourage people to look at doing those types of things, sitting on boards, contributing your time in other ways that are, you know, a little bit outside of your business. What the, one of the things that did really, really good for me is if you're serving on a board or on some other type of committee or program, you do a good job on that. People make an assumption that because you're good at that, you're also probably good at your daytime job. <laughs> uh, and that, that tended to work very well for me because I got lots of referrals from people from that context who actually hadn't even hired us, but they would tell others that they should hire us. I said, well, yeah. why would why'd you yeah. tell them that? Like, you didn't hire me, but yeah, I know, but you're great anyway, so they should. So, you know, <laughs> by, by, by contributing in other spaces, you, it's, it's a great way to network. And that, that's my style of networking versus the social style of networking. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, I think you've got certain people who, you know, they'll grab a, a phone book and start calling. Others will go door to door. Others will go through their list of friends and family and, and old relationships. I, I think there are different niches for different sorts of, of people at the end of the day when it comes to this. Oh, 100%, um, 100% and, correct. And I think everybody's got a certain strength in a certain area. For sure. And, and I'd actually like to say that I don't think that buying into, um, I, I think you said that bought, you bought in, so it was sort of cheating. I. I couldn't agree less with that. I mean, I think it's a very reasonable, very intelligent strategy, especially nowadays where the average financial advisor is tipping 60. Now, a lot of people who are going to be looking to retire or to do or to quasi-retire and just keep a few of their clients but will want to start transitioning their books to somebody else, um, I think that's a great opportunity. We've actually done a couple of interviews with, with people who are in the process of succession or of succeeding a book. And I think it's a great way to get into the industry and to get those first clients and to have a brand backing you from day one. Yeah, and I, I, I'm being a little joking when I say I was cheating because <laughs> it, was, it was the way that worked for me. That's the way I, of I felt most comfortable with. And so that was good. But I do think, you know, there's so much, there's so much need for succession going on right now. I mean, you're right. The average, average advisor is getting quite a bit older there's really a dearth of younger advisors coming into the industry as well. So, you know, a lot of the opportunity for people who, do, who on the other side, who want to transition their business, I don't think they're seeing as much opportunity for that as they might have might have hoped for a number of years ago. And it's, it's kind of bizarre because the dearth of, of say, Gen Xers and millennial um, advisors has come with a dearth of Gen Xers and millennials actually receiving insurance, financial advice, benefits, any of those pieces. Um, because quite frankly, people tend to find advisors who are similar to them, who Absolutely. speak the same language as them. So there's yep. this massive untapped market that almost by default seems to be moving towards automation, digitization, but it's, it's moving towards that because you're lacking a lot of younger people who want to go in. And I think that for most young people entering the market, it's going to be a very lucrative business, like a very lucrative career choice going forward. I think, I think it can be. Um, and, you know, Part of the challenge has been is a lot of people traditionally in our businesses, pension benefit consulting, actually started off selling insurance and yeah. came through the London Lifes and, and came through the, the agency training grounds and then found they liked the benefit side and kind of morphed into that. And I don't think the, the big agencies have those training programs as much as they used to. Again, I was trained in underwriting, right? I wasn't trained <laughs> in selling. And so but they also don't have you know, that level of training, I think, that you did many years ago. So, so I don't think people come in at kind of with the skill set that they need and probably might not have the mentors that they need to actually move forward as much as they did, say, a number of years ago. But I, yeah, do, I do agree. I think there's a big opportunity here for many who want to be in the business. 
It's interesting because I also, and maybe this is just a personal thing, but I've never seen much recruiting from the insurance companies. And I don't know if 20 years ago there was more recruiting happening on campus, off campus for young people, but I... I don't know that I've seen London Life, Manu Life, any of the Great West Life, any of the big guys actually on campus trying to bring in new people. Yeah, I, I can't speak to that directly. I just offer a couple anecdotes from my perspective. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, you know, many years ago, the insurance companies were all over campuses. Like they were trying to bring people strange to all, all the time. And you know, I have no idea what the failure rate was, but it was pretty high. I flash forward to my son who graduated recently, and I think there was one insurance company on his campus talking to people. So, you know, I don't know if that's really a trend, and I'm not close enough to know that, but it would just seem to me that, yes, they, they haven't done as much as they used to do many years ago. Yeah, that I, I find that interesting. I, I'm, I've heard the same anecdotally as well. Um, Okay, so let's let's move away from the micro and towards the macro. I, I'd love to get your thoughts on, if, if you're a financial advisor, you've got, or a benefits advisor um, or pension, and you've got kind of a certain amount of clients, business is going well, when do you start thinking about scaling? How do you think about scaling? How do you know when to pull the trigger? What, what are the, the tipping points? Or what were the tipping points for you, and what can you generalize from them for others? Yeah, I think certainly you learn certain things, and I think, the early mistakes people make are, let me get the revenue first, and then I'll backfill the hiring. And I'll, I'm kind of going to, you know, I'm going to tap dance a while before I get that hiring because I needed that revenue first. And I think mm-hmm. that, that takes a bit more courage to flip it over and to hire first. So I think when you, when you begin to look at where you want to be, you've got to think about what am I going to need when I get there? And what are, the, right. what are the people, what are the supports, what's the backbone I'm going to need when I get there? So... I think that's the first thing in that. I'm talking about being an entrepreneur. I think you just have to switch that thinking around a little bit and stop thinking like a business owner and think like an entrepreneur if you want to scale. But I also want to say it's not necessary to scale. I think too often people get caught up in the fact that they need to grow, 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 and that might not be who they are going back to you know, their own roots. So I think people have to understand whether you know, big growth, aggressive growth, or slow growth is the right thing for them. Just because it's right for somebody else doesn't mean it's right for you. That's so interesting. They, Sorry, go go oh, on. No, you go ahead. So I was just gonna say, um, there we used to when I was a, a venture capitalist in my past life. Um, there were always companies that would come to us, and they just weren't venture capital companies. You know, mm-hmm. they were we would call them lifestyle businesses. These were companies that, if they were successful or if they kept going the way that they were going, they were going to make the the founder a lot of money. They would probably pay out dividends forever. You know, they'd reach $10 million, $20 million. But they weren't venture capital scale. They weren't the kind of companies where you pump money into it because you expected to keep growing to 100 to 200 to $500 million, you know? Right. Um, and I think, I think what, what you're saying just kind of resonates with that. It's a very similar mentality. You need to know what kind of business it is you want to run. Do you want to run a business that tries to get to 90 people or to 1,000 people? Or do you want to run a business where... Quite frankly, it's going to be you and maybe a couple of other people, and you're going to build a very profitable business and a great lifestyle out of it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, again, going back to yourself is understanding what's important to you, because I think quite often in, in business and in life, we let others define for us what success looks like. You know, mm-hmm. you should be a CEO, you should be this, you should be that, when in reality, maybe you don't want to be that. Maybe you want to be something else and you want to be comfortable with whatever that something else is. So 
So that first stage is understanding what you want to be as a business. And then I think once you understand that, then you got to look forward and say, where are we going? You know, what skill sets am I going to need once we get there? Like playing hockey, you want to pass the puck to where the person is going to be, not where they were. So you want to think about what those skill sets are you need to get there. Um, and then ultimately you have to find a way to attract those clients that make sense for you. So scaling in our business is also a lot different than scaling um, in a tech business, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, because in our, in our space, relationships tend to be built one at a time. Right. Uh, you know, in, in, our, in the particular niche that we work in. Certainly some coming in this industry are taking a different approach and it works great for them. But in our particular niche, it's, it's a one at a time type of relationship. So what we need to do to scale is we need to expand those relationships and extend the, expand the referrals and the people who know us. And that, that's how we ultimately scale is through those kind of connections. Okay. And that's, that's totally fair. So last question for you because we're running close to the end of time or to running out of time, not the end of time. That was <laughs> a weird way of saying it. It's a um, metaphysical, isn't it? So. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the eclipse was like earlier this week, so we so, can't even blame that. Yeah. Uh, so, so... What are the three worst mistakes, or maybe the worst mistake you ever made when it came to the business, if, if you care to share? I just think it'd be a fun uh, question. Uh, for me, probably, it was, it was not going on my own earlier. Okay. It, it was not having, the, you know, not having the courage and the trust in myself. I probably could have done it 10 years earlier if I wanted to, or five years earlier if I wanted to. That's interesting. I, I like that answer a lot. When I was um, debating to leave and join Fineo, there was a lot of that introspective piece of whether this was a good idea or not. And one of the one of the best articles I actually ever read on the topic was from a blogger. Have you ever heard of the Wait But Why blog? I've heard of it. I don't think I've ever read it. So it's it's a wonderful, wonderful blog, and he had this. He he, he the the writer put up a bunch of really great articles, and then apparently. Got in like Elon Musk was a huge fan of the blog, so Elon Musk's uh, secretary called him and said, "Do you want to come and spend two days with Elon Musk, going through his companies, and then write a blog about him?" So the author was, "Yes, of course, wow. of course, I do." That's a ridiculous <laughs> question. Yeah. Um, and he went and he wrote a, I believe it was a three or a four part miniseries. I think a three part miniseries. First part was on like SpaceX. The second part was on Tesla. And the third part, though, was was one of the best articles I've ever read, and it was called um, The Chef and the Cook, uh, you know, what makes Elon Musk the way that he is. And it talked a lot about how just fear of uncertainty and fear of the unknown is, is what keeps us kind of stagnant, what keeps us moving in the same direction that we've been moving and what stops us from taking big chances. But when you think about a lot of this fear of uncertainty, it's completely irrational, right? So mm-hmm. we, we're... Were the kind of the the children and the grandchildren of the Great Depression era of our of our grandparents or our of probably our grandparents and yours as well, who went through the Great Depression, where if you didn't have a secure and stable job, you might actually starve to death. But and you know that message got transfer, transferred down to the baby boomers, who transferred it down to to the younger generations. But the reality is, you know, the grand majority of us aren't going to starve to death if we take a chance, jump, and try to do our own thing. We just feel that way. And, and the reality of the situation is the, the reality of this uncertainty is not nearly as dramatic and terrifying as we think it is. We're just picking up the wrong lessons that have been ingrained into us. So it's, it's a beautiful article. I, I might post it on, um, on the blog for people to read. But it was probably the best article I ever read when I was debating about whether or not to make the jump. And it really pushed me towards deciding, you know what, I'm just going to do this. 
Oh, that's great. I'll, I'll look up that article. If you post yeah, it, would be great. I'll, so. I will, I will email it to you right after this, and I'll post it up on this blog. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. It's a long read, though, just fair warning. It's probably a 45-minute read. Perfect. Um, but Unless you're, you're a right. faster reader than me. No. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I think that, that whole, um, you know, at the end of the day, what most people, you know, if you look at what most people like to change about themselves, it would be to get rid of their own self-limiting beliefs. Right? Mm-hmm. That, that's what most people do is we limit ourselves more than anybody else limits us. And so kind of casting off those self-limiting beliefs and understanding what your real strengths are, I think, you know, makes it easier to do those things. Yeah, and, and I, I fully agree. Also, you can always turn to other people to help you figure that out. I think. Absolutely correct. Yeah. I mean, people like to help. The you know, best question you can ask anybody is, could you give me some advice? People <laughs> love to give advice. People absolutely love to give advice, and they absolutely hate to take their own advice is what I've seen. Exactly correct. It's it's a very powerful (laughs) question if you want to learn something. Okay, well, on that note, Kevin, um, can you give me some advice? Uh, Ask lots of questions as you do. I think you continue to learn, (laughs) and you continue to get better at what you do. Perfect. And on that note, um, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate it, Jonathan. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to some more. Total pleasure. Take care. Bye. Thanks.